you're definitely smarter than me. I know that because I know your sister. So anyway, but thanks, you guys. <laughs> oh, man, I, I tell you what, I would not. There's some things about growing up that you want to go back to that you miss that you would enjoy. But being in college is not one of them. I, I, I hand it to you guys. I, I was not a student. I was not a great student. Um, if you can, open your pew Bibles to page 521 and kind of hold your place there. Jeremiah chapter 7, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11 uh, in piecemeal later on. Uh, so kind of keep your fingers there in that, on that page throughout the whole sermon. But uh, anybody who has been a teenager or uh, has had teenagers knows that kids will say one thing and do another, right? They'll say, yeah, 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 and then they'll go do the exact opposite, right? And uh, hopefully we have rules in our homes like you don't drink until you're of age, you don't drive drunk, you don't drive intoxicated, you don't take drugs, you, uh, you save yourself for marriage, good rule. It's one that people are forgetting these days. Um, uh, <laughs> you, uh, you know, do your homework, you know, you clean up after yourselves, things like that. Just little rules of your house that make sense. But once I remember I got in trouble as a teenager, and I can't remember why I got in trouble, or maybe I just don't want to tell you, but I do remember that my, fa- my father's reaction when I did get in trouble. He may not remember this, but I do. And, and it's much more important that I remember what he, how he reacted than, than what I did. Because at the moment, he calmly said to me, I just can't trust you anymore. And oh, it just it devastated. It killed me. Um, anybody who knows me knows that I tell this story every once in a while, so you may have heard it before. But as a young man, you know, with this developing brain, you know, us guys, we kind of develop a little slower, you know. Uh, I didn't fully grasp how my dishonesty and my disobedient actions could actually affect my father's heart, right? I just didn't see it. It pained me more than any punishment to hear those words. It really did. I I wanted my father's approval. I wanted my father's trust. It was good that he said that to me because it woke me up a little bit. And I had done something to break that relationship or at least hinder it. I had driven a wedge there that I didn't want there. And I learned that day and I learned even later as a father myself that when a child says, yeah, 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 sure, dad, and then they go do the opposite of what you wish, it actually kind of hurts the father, right? And I'm not saying this to make my kids feel guilty. My kids are pretty great kids, actually. Um, but, you know, other cu- cultures use the language of, of shame. You know, a child's disobedience brings shame on the father's name. And shame hurts, doesn't it? Shame is embarrassing in a sense. And, uh, you know, but it's not only disrespectful. It's, it's also worrisome to the dad or the father because he worries about the well-being of his child. You know, we, we ask our kids to do certain things because it's good for them, right? You know, um, so in a perfect world, a father's wishes would be sort of respected and deferred to inside the home as well as outside the home, right? Um, given their wisdom and knowledge and myself, my great wisdom and knowledge. Amen. You know, I'm just kidding. But uh, children of other cultures seem to be very aware that their words and their actions reflect their father's name. I remember that in Indonesia as we lived there. But, um, you know, a father transfers his character 
to a son or a daughter. He transfers over what he knows to be good and right, pouring into them uh, what he knows to be, you know, best for them and will bring life and safety to them and and make making them to be a trustworthy reliable adult later on marked as someone that not only does good things but is actually a good person right now the question is 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 god not the same right is god not the same with like feelings and concern for the development and direction of his children and i think so You know, as imperfect as earthly fathers are, God is not imperfect. His, you know, my dad was as stellar as a dad's go, right? I I can't, I have no arguments uh, for that relationship. My dad was always a great father, but he's, he's an imperfect guy like the rest of us, you know. And comparatively, God's direction can be fully trusted all the time as the absolute best for you, even when it feels like it's not, right? And this is why worship is absolutely crucial uh, for intimacy with God and the development of our character and the furtherance of his mission, right? So a disobedient sort of hypocritical lifestyle not only brings shame to God's name, but it drives a wedge in our relationship with God and it hinders, it, it harms us and it hinders his, his, uh, his desires in the world. So with that all in mind, read along with me in Jeremiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Uh, It says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim the message. So he's standing right at the gates of the temple, right? And he says, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Now, I want you to know that that last little sentence or phrase there, I will let you live in this place, can also be translated, and I will dwell with you, or in other words, I'll let you be in my presence, right? I'll let you remain in my presence, And this is a message that God gave Jeremiah, as we know, to deliver at the gates of the temple, as he's just said. Traditionally, during pilgrimage feasts, you know, worshipers would be greeted by someone at the gates there and asking them to uh, sort of examine their moral lives prior to passing through the gates of the temple. To be thoughtful about it. And I actually was thinking about printing up little cards to give you at the door this morning to ask you to do the same thing, but I never got around to it because I was on vacation this past week. And I'm going on vacation next week, so amen to that. But, um, but, uh, uh, but that, this was a practice that probably had lapsed by the time of Jeremiah, but he picks it back up and he calls out the justifications people were using and their hypocrisy as a result of even coming to the temple, right? It continues in verse 4, he says, Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, those aren't deceptive words. That was the temple of the Lord. Why are they deceptive? Well, we're going to find out. Uh, As we know, this phrase is indicative of the Lord's presence, right, among them that and we talked about how important that presence was last week as we as we looked at chapter one. The temple, the temple itself was believed to be the place where God resided. His presence resided, right, at that time. 
And it was probably said three times during the temple liturgy, so they say it, he says it three times here, right? Temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. But to make more sense of that statement, we could change the words and actually to read, don't believe that it it will help you to go on repeating the words, God lives here, God lives here, God really lives here. Sounds like a worship song we would sing, right? Don't think that that's going to help you. And that's why the words were so deceptive. They were using, as we'll find out, is that they were using the temple as sort of a talisman for themselves. That they thought nothing could happen to them. They could go out and do anything they wanted and they could come back to the temple just because the temple is there and the presence of the Lord resided there that nothing could happen to them. So they're using it as a talisman. Later in the chapter, which we're not going to read today, but God points to Israel's past and and for them to remember Shiloh, where the tabernacle of God was uh, had first dwelt. Remember and and to remember how it was abandoned, it was destroyed by the Philistines due to Israel's wickedness, due to Israel walking away from the Lord like they always do. It seems like, in other words, God pulled out of the tabernacle and pulled out from there from Shiloh, and He allowed that to happen to that place. You know, because they were just walking away from him. Why wouldn't he do the same now? Why wouldn't he do the same now? In comparison to our moment in history right now, one pastor says this about the church today. He says, in the West, we've somehow been able to separate believing the truth from how we live. Isn't that true? In the West, we've somehow been able to separate believing the truth from how we live. That is so true, so, so true in so many uh, instances. So we can enter church, right? We came here today. We can be theologically correct in all that we say, you know, in our, in our speech about God and about church and everything else, with little to no impact on how we live, which is what Jeremiah is confronting in these people, right? That's what he's confronting So we can't say that God even lives here, right, without a total change in our beliefs and our values and in our actions. Beliefs and values have to extend into how we act, how we live. Because worship is a life event. It's not a Sunday event, right? Worship is a life event, not a Sunday event. And it's indicated by very practical things things that we see in our lives actions that we take part of and he starts to define those in verse five and i don't think they're limited to this but this is some of the things that he's addressing with them he says if you really change your ways and your actions deal with each other justly if you do not oppress the foreigner the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm then i will let you live in this place in the land i gave your ancestors forever and ever but look you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless will you steal and murder commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and we'll find out who he is in a minute, and follow other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? 
Now, remember, a den of robbers is where robbers run back to to their safety to hide and count the, all their booty, right? They, they get all their stuff, and they're going to go back there and count it in safety. And then he says, but I have been watching. Remember last week we heard that, that he was watching to make sure that his word is fulfilled in the world, right? So I've been watching, declares the Lord. And we get the sense that God is like hovering, watching over what's going on. He's paying attention. He's awake, right? Now, what he's saying is that these lifestyle changes are actually true worship, not just showing up at the temple, doing the rituals, saying the right words and things like that. So I propose to you today that God is not pleased with hypocritical ritual. He's not pleased with hypocritical ritual. He desires holistic worship as seen in life transformation in us. And transformation happens by being in God's presence. Isn't that wonderful? That we have that opportunity to be in God's presence all the time. But they seem to think that they can live largely outside of his presence and then come back to hide under his protection. That's kind of manipulative, isn't it? That's not relationship. So we're going to learn that Passionately saying, passionately saying, yes, 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 Lord, right, in here, while leading a dichotomous lifestyle out there in all the other areas of our life, isn't worship of God at all. It's not. Rather, it's worship of something else. And, the, and this damages our relationship with God. I think it, it brings shame on His name. It impedes our development as His children. And it impedes His missional call in the world to go and reach the nations. And at some level, it can even indicate that we are not actually safely under His wing as we might think. Listen to me carefully. That possibly... Salvation has not occurred in my life. Maybe I am just a cultural Christian. Maybe I need to examine where my relationship is with the Lord. Israel's history is replete with this sort of hypocrisy and deviation from the Lord, right? Notice the references to sin in verses 5 and 6 and 8 and 9, right? He, they, they include injustice, oppression, murder of the innocent, trusting deceptive words, adultery, perjury, following Baal and other gods, robbery and hypocrisy. That's a pretty condemning list, right? But this stuff is nothing new, right? We know this from Adam and Eve. It all went downhill as they hid their differences from each other, exchanging harmony in the world with the Lord and with each other for hostility, placing themselves under sort of the dominion of Satan who would seek to destroy them. But God doesn't desire coerced worship. God does not desire coerced worship, so He allows us to stray. Think about that. He doesn't force us into this. And then we get on to Cain and Abel, the first murder. Then we go to Noah and the starting over by God because in Genesis 6-5, it's a very important verse. It says, every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Wow. That's pretty strong. That's a pretty strong statement. 
So there's this large history of Israel sort of following God, not following God, devotion, waxing and waning back and forth out of Egypt, into the desert, onto Mount Sinai, making a golden calf, uh, out through the judges, and on and on and on and all this stuff. And we remember that when Israel entered Canaan, the Canaanites worshipped a number of gods that the Israelites were, were supposed to have nothing to do with. God told them this, right? And that's Baal is one of them, right? Baal was the supreme deity of many other gods. He was the male deity of land and fertility, and his title meant landowner. He's taking God's title, right? Then there was Ashtoreth. She's also called Venus in Rome, Aphrodite in Greece, Ishtar in Babylonia, and some other place. She has numerous names. And if you remember the Greek games in the Olympics just a number of years ago, I forget what year it was, she rose up out of the floor in the, in the opening, opening uh, ceremonies. Kind of telling, right, what we worship. And she was the goddess of fertility and war, and she was imaged by Asherah poles, which were phallic symbols that decorated the high places all around. So you would always be reminded of, of Ashtoreth, you know. And that they believed, and I don't think that there are any kids in here today, so I'll just be very frank. They believed that these de- deities saw them in lascivious acts, such as orgies and homosexual acts and incest and adultery and the like, that these deities would be aroused and then they would bring forth rain on the land and make it fruitful. And within these religious structures, there was a temple priesthood of really good-looking young folks, you know, most likely. And as your act of worship, you were to go to the temple and you were to perform sexual acts, which included orgies and incestuous or homosexual or adulterous acts as your spiritual form of worship. And the, the obvious byproduct of these practices was unwanted pregnancies. Babies with a no-known father. So... There was conveniently a third god named Molech. And he was the god of fire. And he demanded child sacrifice. Molech was the solution to the unwanted byproduct of the other two deities. The worship of the other two deities. So he was the abortion solution of ancient people. That's why abortion is wrong. It kills life that God creates. And this is one reason for God's extreme disgust and anger. So these words in Jeremiah have a much deeper meaning when you actually know the history, right? We don't know the extent to which this stuff was being practiced during Jeremiah's ministry, but Baal is mentioned, so it must have been happening at some level, right? Because I know at different times in history of Israel, it did happen at great levels. And all these various practices produced a people who have very little character of God. So things like usury and perjury and theft and oppression, they're simple, obvious byproducts of such character practices, right? So have you ever noticed that one choice leads to another choice, that one sin leads to another sin, that small sins build up and lead to greater, bigger sins? I watch crime stories on YouTube and most typically, they aren't just like like heartless psychopaths. Usually, they're just regular people who have made a lot of small bad choices that have led to larger bad choices. It's like 
an unmanned boat. I love this illustration. Sitting on what looks like a placid lake. And, you know, we don't notice the gentle undercurrent of that boat, underneath that boat. And if it's not moored to solid land, it just simply drifts away over time, right? It floats out from the shore. So if we only worship in this room, if we come here and we just kind of do the rituals and the act, but not with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength in, you know, embedded in it outside, out there, with actions that reflect are reflective of God, we also slowly drift away, don't we? By the way, Jesus used the same exact words, and I thought this was interesting, in Mark chapter 11, when He overturned the tables of the temple, and as God does in this passage, in actually verse 11, he said Israel had made the temple to be a den of robbers. A place where Israel would go out, as I said, and do anything they wanted, and then come back to the temple as if it could be their sanctuary from all their crimes, although their lives were in all other ways unreflective of God. And to understand Jesus' words, we have to understand that Facing the sanctuary, and, and the court of priests was the court of, of men, and behind that was the court of women, and then a large area, the court of the Gentiles, in which Gentiles, all the different nations, all the different people groups were allowed to enter, but they could go no further. And it was in this court of the Gentiles which this scene was played out in Mark chapter 11 when Jesus is overturning the tables. Why he's so mad? It was the missional front porch of Judaism where the Gentile who didn't know God, all the different nations who didn't know God, could see the Israelites worshiping and displaying God's glory and God's character right before them. Where they could learn about who God was by actually watching God's people in active worship where they could be surprised that the Jews weren't just concerned for themselves, but they actually were concerned for them as well. Not only theologically, but very practically. And that is the heart of God. That Israel, being so closely connected to God's good heart, was praying for the nations to know Him and to experience Him and, you know, for themselves and to, and to care for them in really real-life, practical ways. And we remember Jeremiah's call, call to, to reach the nations and called to remind Israel to go and to reach the nations, to be a light to the nations. Yet in Mark chapter 11, Israel's corruption was being played out in full view of the Gentile nations, unreflective of God's heart. Instead, it was selfish, it was self-centered, and it was greedy. That's all it was. It's disgusting. All the different non-Jewish people groups who had gathered there, you know, either out of just plain curiosity or they were actually really searching for the Lord, right, weren't receiving what God had, had sort of desired for them. They're not seeing God's people reflect God's character or heart, but rather just a selfish concern for themselves. Now let me explain that there was a need... There was a legitimate need for exchanging of money from one currency to the other at the temple during these, these, these moments. 
Money from three sources circulated in Palestine. You had the imperial Roman money, then you had the provincial Greek money, and then you had the local Jewish money. And money changers provided the Tyrian Jewish coinage for the annual temple tax. Every male 20 years and up had to pay it. And this was an exchange for their Greek and Roman money, which had portraits on them, and they were considered to be idolatrous, and they could not be used in the temple. So they had to do this. It couldn't be given as a temple tax. So money changing was not the problem in Mark 11, right? And historically, this story in churches across the world have been preached as a lesson on greed, and it's very, it has very little to do with greed. Greed was just a byproduct of another problem. It's not that Jesus didn't think that someone should make money for their exchanging currency or, or their time. He thought that that was legitimate. However, they had created this giant monopoly over the exchange of money and the sale of all the sacrificial animals at that moment, right? So you could only get your money changed there at an exorbitant rate, which was absolute usury. And if you brought your own sacrifice to sort of save some money from your own herd of goats or, an, or a pigeon, which would have been a, young, a, a poor person's Uh, sacrificial choice, it most likely would be rejected at the temple gates. They would inspect it and say, ah, it's not good enough. And they would reject it, and you'd have to buy directly from them at an inflated rate. So it was shameful. It was absolutely shameful. All the nations watching this happen. It didn't reflect God's heart for the poor at all, for anybody. So the corruption inside the temple was absolutely rampant. Israel was just a negative witness to the nations passing through there. And if you remember, Jesus wouldn't allow anybody to carry anything through the the court of the Gentiles um, since the Jews had totally, absolutely disregarded this court of the Gentiles and and its purpose of being a light to the nations. The court of the Gentiles was no longer important to them at all. In Mark 11, they had allowed it to become just a thoroughfare. You know, anyone could saunter through, leading or carrying anything, camels pooping on the floor, whatever. It doesn't matter. It no longer was a place of teaching and prayer and preaching and things like that. It, was a pla- it wasn't a place for evangelizing these nations coming through, of telling them about God or caring for them in, in practical ways. It was just simply an overcrowded marketplace and it had lost its purpose. And now you get it, why Jesus was so mad and he makes a whip and starts whipping people and t- turning over tables. Amen to Jesus. Amen. I'm glad he did it. People often claim, use claims of hypocrisy aimed at the church to discredit Christianity. You know, although some of that sometimes can be revisionist history without clarity to the real nature of events, sadly there's enough truth in history to convict the church. They reference the Crusades, the Inquisition, witch trials in Europe, the social judgment, exclusion, slavery the church has supported throughout history. Now, let's be honest, not every church and never, not every Christian supported these things or did these things. You know, but one does it and everybody gets labeled, right? In this passage, though, instead of denying the truth that Israel's being hypocritical, Jeremiah deals with it head on. He comes right at it. Jeremiah's mission becomes clear 
as he's warned that he would face oppositions and messages like this one are the reason why. They're difficult. People don't like to be called out on their hypocrisy or their sin. They didn't in Mark 11. The Pharisees were gnashing their teeth wanting to kill Jesus at that moment. How dare he do this? So like confession in the Catholic Church can become just a way to do what you want all week, as long as you go and you confess your sins to the priests, you'll be okay. Some of the leaders back then may have looked the other way, or worse, they may have said to people, you know, go do whatever you want, but, you know, come back, do the rituals, pay your temple tax, do, do what you got to do, say the right words when you come to the temple, and you'll be okay with God. It'll make it all right. No, God's not going to be duped like that. Why would he? Jeremiah calls out that hypocrisy. He says, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Remember last week how we talked about people right now giving up on the integrity of the scriptures, twisting it, chopping it up, piecemealing it out to fit their own desired narrative, to fit their own sin life into into being okay. You know, same thing here. This is not a new problem in the church. Which brings about the question. What are we tempted to go through? Or where are we tempted to go through the emotions just to appease God? That's a personal question to you. Not one that I want any of you necessarily to answer with me. But I would love for you to wrestle with that. Where are we tempted to go through the motions just to appease God? Jeremiah reminds us that God's interested in the true nature of our heart, right? He's he's not pleased with hypocritical ritual. He desires holistic worship. He desires life transformation. Now, remember, we always speak in the context of grace and mercy, but we can't use grace and mercy as an excuse. Not just to know God intellectually, right? Or even theologically, but to know Him in the full orb of life, revealed by a character that is uh, giving practical care to the needy, to the vulnerable, that is concerned about the nations of the world. To know that He is Master, that we are stewards, that we are His children in every sense of the word. And He is Father. Jeremiah has been tasked with delivering a difficult truth to these people. The people are going through the rituals of worship without allowing their hearts to be changed at all. So God's saying, deal with each other justly. Quit oppressing. Don't shed innocent blood. Don't follow other gods to your own harm. He wants more than just their worship at the moment in the temple. He wants worship in all areas of their life. Every single area of your, of your life. But what does worship really mean? We always think of worship means what happens on, on this stage. Right? And historically, churches have fought over the right way to worship. Right? Some of these disagreements represent sort of legitimate theological differences that committed Christians can agree to disagree on. Others are simply matters of taste or preference, prompting churches or denominational 
conflicts that, that are needlessly divisive. The worship wars, they call it, right, is a term people use to describe the, the incredible volume of fights over worship style in the American evangelical church in the 90s and the early 2000s. I think it still continues. And a lot of churches just had a contemporary service and then the traditional service. Church of the Savior did that. We all did that. You know, we, that's, that, that's how we solved the problem. And I remember I was, I was at another church and you know, I could never get the elders to come to my service because they didn't like the worship style. I'm like, you're an elder. You should show up, dude. Suck it up. Sing a worship song, right? And these fights were frivolous, right? They're frivolous. And they often imported greater theological sort of meaning to church differences. What did it matter whether they played an organ in the, the morning service or the guitar at night? It doesn't matter. In this passage, God reminds his people that worship is also what they do outside of the temple in everyday life as much as what they do inside the temple. One pastor in Dallas was seized by this vision of God's heart for the fatherless that he saw in James chapter 1, verse 27. And he started a movement which prompted his church to give generously to go and support the fatherless. The president of the Pro-Life Union of uh, Philadelphia and I have talked about possibly 6-8 being a part of starting a women, a, a single mom's home, you know, uh, in Ardmore or in, or in this area. And, and I'd love to do more with them since the most vulnerable are the unborn. Now, if you've had an abortion, I'm not passing judgment. Don't misread my words. Don't misread my words. You know, we support a lot of workers in the Middle East and in North Africa who do a lot of this work with the poor and the fatherless and, you know, the needy and all that kind of stuff quite often and really well. And we actually, this week, we just decided to support two more for another year. Two extra ones that we just started supporting. Just this week, we decided to support an immigrant family that has moved into the area and they they have some needs and so we decided from the Benevolence Fund we're going to support them for one year as, uh, as they need it. And I would actually like to go a little farther, if you don't mind, and I don't feel pressured. You don't have to put anything in this box when I pass it, or you can put it in later if you want to. But I would, I'm going to pass these boxes. I would love to give them some cash so that their two kids can buy some winter clothes because they just, they just don't have that much. And they haven't seen each other in a long time. And Maybe you could help pass these out. But um, I'm going to get it started by putting something in there. But it's, you know, there's a lot that we can do. And there's a lot, a lot of ways that we can be generous towards these needs in our community and in the world. So 6-8 over there, I mean, those are just a couple things, right? 6-8 has done a great deal over the years. And, and that's, that's good. And we'll continue to do those things, you know, as, as we see need. But as individuals, where are you in all of this? Where are you in all of this? I remember one person, they sold something and they, they had their wife, his wife said, you got to give some of that to the church as, you know, as a, as a tithe to the Lord. And I remember him telling me, man, that was painful to do. <laughs> and I was like, it gets easier, brother. It actually brings a blessing to you. And it did. He, he said that later on. Jeremiah's 
uh, life of hard missions included calling out hypocrisy and reminding Israel of the real true meaning of worship. You know, and maybe you haven't directly oppressed someone. Maybe you haven't, you know, sacrificed a child to Molech. I mean, I don't think anybody's ever done that in here. Maybe you haven't committed perjury, you know, things like that. But maybe this is this stuff is seen a little bit more in your indifference to ministry, to suffering, to people than anything else. That we see needs and we ignore them. And when a need comes up, we say, yeah, I'll pray for you. And then we walk away and we never really even pray, let alone do anything. See, worship must extend to our daily lives outside of the church walls. Right? Not only because those things really matter, but because what we do in one space since, uh, you know, uh, affects the sincerity of what we do in the other. Right? So if I'm not living for the Lord out there and I come in here, it's not really worship, is it? The problem with our witness sometimes is not the sharing of our faith. We just did a, a, a seminar on how to share our faith and go out. And some of you went out on the streets of Upper Darby and did that. And we're probably going to put some things together to, to, share, to go out occasionally and share our faith uh, with people. But the problem is not often the sharing of our faith, but it's the living of it. Jeremiah says we cannot willingly live contrary to God's character, to God's will, and expect to have any real intimacy with God in any meaningful way. It's just an axiom of life. It's just the truth of life. And indifference may even be an indicator of our need for salvation. We've all heard the stories of even pastors who have preached and preached and preached and then they come to Jesus. Some people just come to salvation in the strangest of ways. But as I want life transformation for my children, for them to reflect my heart in all they do, God wants the same of His children, doesn't He? It's a dad's will. So I challenge you to think through two things this week. Number one, what private sin are you living which impedes your worship? What private sin are you living that you need to turn away from, that you need to give up that impedes your worship? Secondly, what ways can you worship the Lord by supporting the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow? Who do you know? that's, you know, out, out of place, out of sorts. I mean, I lived overseas. I know what that feels like. And I know how, how, how intensely attached I got to the people that cared for me there. Helped me to go buy groceries. Helped me to get settled. Showed me around. Showed me how to use the public transportation. Stuff like that. Those were people that just stuck in my heart. People that defended me when I didn't know what I was doing out in the culture. It, that's what God calls us to do. These really helpful, practical things. So think about those two things this week. What private sin are you living which impedes your worship? And what ways can you worship the Lord by supporting the, father, the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow? Amen?
Amen. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that this stuff is uh, all your idea, that it's stuff that we tend to drift away from when we're not challenged by it. We ask that you would keep your name before us at all times. That as we go about our week, that it would almost be like we're looking in a mirror and that you are reflected in it. That we would be reminded of where you are and what you're doing right before us, even in the really small mundane things and the people's lives around us. And that we would be more and more and more apt and more willing because we are basking in your presence, because we are soaking who you are up to just pour that out and to overflow that on them that we would actually share the gospel, that we actually would open our wallet and give when the time comes and somebody is in need, that we would actually open our home or make a meal or whatever it is that somebody, somebody might need to see them move forward. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are the God of the fatherless, you are the God of the foreigner, You are the God of those who are suffering and need and vulnerable. And we ask that you would make us more and more uh, aware of those needs right around us and more and more out of your character, able to answer those things. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You guys do anything? We're going to have a prayer uh, moment, prayer update. Ooh, we got two people today. Wow.